All right, uh, this is the part of our service where we get to sit under the, the Word of God and, and kind of hear that together. Uh, you know, an interesting thing is, is that God comes to us and He reveals Himself and He speaks to us in human language with just incredible generosity, that He comes to us in a way that we can understand Him, that we can know what He said. And then it's kind of odd, it's kind of foolish but to our thinking, but you know, He then delivers that Word to us in a, in a preached form by a, a man, a person speaking to them sharing the word of God, uh, even though I'm a sinner, even though I'm a weak man, even though I'm not the one to necessarily be declaring the truth of this because of my own way and my own living, yet God has chosen that to be a strange thing that we do to actually come and hear the word preached in that way. And so it really requires you as hearers to think about that and think of how do you humble yourself in such a way that you can hear the word and receive that so that God can speak to you in this time together, a very short period of time together this week so that you can hear the voice of God and what he has, looking past human frailty, looking past my weaknesses, my inabilities, so that you can hear what God has for you in this passage. So I'm going to pray right now that uh, I'll do a good job of trying to put that forward to you and that you'll do a good job in the work together so that you can hear and receive the word during this time. God, we thank you for uh, the text of scripture that was just read. We thank you for the chance to think about it, to ponder it. God, we know that we are in need of you to bring it before our minds, to have it make an impact on our lives. God, we know that we uh, have so many other distractions, so many things in our life, but God, I ask that uh, you would bring each person in this room to a place where they can uh, focus and hear what you have for them in this passage today. And God, I ask for me that you would use my words to be a help, an explanation for what you're doing in this passage uh, so that it has meaning and life for those who hear it in your name. Amen. All right, so you think about your day today, or maybe your day tomorrow is even more so this way, right? You have this huge to-do list, right? That's what we all do. You have this list of calendar items, errands you need to get run, goals you need to accomplish at work, personal goals, things you're trying to accomplish, maybe in your, your fitness routine. Um, lots of things going on in our lives And just for a moment, we think about all that we have to accomplish in life, and it starts to get overwhelming, right? It's a lot of things on our plate. If you start running through your calendar for tomorrow morning, you probably start thinking, oh man, I've been trying to shut that off. But here right now, just for a moment, if you think through it, there's a lot that you have to do. As Bostonians, we often find ourselves uh, trying to find significance and fulfillment in the doing, right? We want to accomplish so much in our lives, so many things that we need to get done. And it's sort of a societal uh, impact here in the Boston area. Uh, When I first moved here about eight years ago, I was just amazed by how busy everyone was. I would meet people, and they're working long, long hours at work. And then many of them have a side gig, a nonprofit. They're worried about their social life. They're spending time uh, keeping themselves in shape and healthy, running from here and there, all the kid responsibilities, places you're going. I thought, wow, Boston is busy. I thought about on the T, right? You just get on the T and you notice there's like people who can do like five things at once. They're like holding onto the bar. They're like doing their phone. There's like a book in the other hand. They're like answering back and forth and they have headphones in. You're thinking, how do you get all of that in that moment of riding around the T and if you're going to miss your stop if you're not careful, right? There's so much stuff that we're trying to, trying to get done. And really, that's a, this output from Bostonians is a trait to be admired, right? It is impressive. Uh, we're a city, a place that's accomplished a lot, gets a lot done. But there is a dark side to that level of grind, that output that we try to do, right? Uh, It weighs on us. There's a pressure to perform, to achieve time and time again. 
We feel that throughout the year, most notably usually in the dead of winter, right? Then you really feel this weight. It's dark when you woke up. It's dark when you go home from work. You feel the weight on you all day. And so Boston as a culture, because we're always running around, has issues with that, right? The Boston Public Health Commission um, had a fairly recent survey about 2008, 2013, and they showed that year over year there's an increase in persistent anxiety among Bostonian adults, up to a figure of 20% in 2013. Uh, That means that they were anxious for more than 15 days in the last 30-day period. There's a lot of reasons for anxiety. Totally get that. But some of the causes of that are definitely the level of pressure, the anxiety that we have to perform, the expectations of others, and the busyness of our lives that are key contributors to us specifically. All this pressure, all this need to perform means that we're trying to stretch as much as we can into our day. We're pushed to the margin, oftentimes sacrificing sleep in order to get everything done. And so it's not surprising then to find that uh, Middlesex County, as just an example, is in the top tier nationally with the percentage of adults over the age of 18 who get less than seven hours of sleep per night. It's between 38 and 48 percent, according to a CDC study in 2014. So you think around, okay, we're pushed in every way, trying to accomplish so much. There's so much to get done. It causes many of us anxiety to some extent, so much so that we may even sacrifice sleep at times in order to try to keep things moving, trying to get it all done. So we need something, right? That's, that's going to cause us to find some kind of solution. You might think mindfulness or yoga, searching for more exercise, longer vacations, or medication. And many of these are well-founded. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking any of these. These are all helpful things that may be needed along the way to help correct issues that that we're having. But it does point to this fundamental need that we have. We all are in need of rest. We can't get it. We need it so much, and yet there's this feeling that we can never get the appropriate rest that we need. And so all the things we try, they're not ultimate. They require more and more and they produce less and less satisfaction over time. So what do we need? We need this rest. It's a reality. A rest from expectations, a rest from performance, and a rest from the never-ending treadmill. So Jesus understood this. He made a statement in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. He said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the point or theme of today's message is, is actually really straightforward. Uh, it's, it's this idea of finding rest. So Jesus promises rest for us. This is our fundamental thing. It's not complex. It's really straightforward, but it's really needed for where we live in the world today. Jesus promises press, uh, rest excuse me, for the present and also for the future. So it has these extending results that are important, but also meaningful for our life today. So as we walk through the passage that Patty just read in uh, chapter 4, we're going to see this is our our basic layout of working through the passage. We're going to see first the faith for rest, the promise for rest, and the labor for rest. And you have the verses kind of laid out there in front of you. So that's what we're going to spend our time on, just kind of real methodically working through the text here of Scripture, letting it speak to us. This is an important passage uh, that's laid out for for us. So I want to try to break this down so you have a good feeling. So I'm going to look at just the first two verses uh, to talk about the faith for rest, which, which may not make sense on face value, so I'll have to explain what I mean by that. Uh, here are the words that Patty just read for those, those first two verses. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So we have here a promise that's presented to us. If you remember, as we've gone our way through Hebrews in our series, there's been warnings that we've looked at so far. Now, warnings are presented as a means of grace to remind us of the dire stakes of living the Christian life and what disobedience will bring to us, and that tries to drive us toward the right path. So we read warnings. This passage that we're going to read about is a promise. Now, biblical promises are meant to give us hope and to energize us for living. The promises of God are all throughout the Bible. You can't read the Bible without finding promises that God is putting toward his people. From the very early beginning in Genesis, throughout the story of Israel, to the words and and mouth of Jesus, we hear the promises that he's making, as well to the early church. In fact, the last chapter of the book of the Bible ends with Jesus, Jesus presenting a promise of his return. So promises are throughout the Bible, and they're an important means for how to live the Christian life. These are covenants of God making, there are covenants, I should say, of God making solemn agreements with humanity, with the weight of God's promise. And at times he has even a rejoinder on this to say, he will fulfill it even if we cannot fulfill our part of the agreement. So he does that throughout. Uh, and so it's, it's a key point that the author is making here, that there's a promise presented to us. We're going to dig into this a little bit more, so stick with me here. Verse 2 of this, this, uh, this promise that he's presenting, it's showing that this didn't, uh, that there was a, a promise made at the end of Moses' life. So what happened, we're going to talk about the story a little bit more as we go through our time this morning, but I'm going to just kind of start it here. This is flashbacking, kind of bringing about the story of Israel at the end of the time of Moses. So if you were with us uh, last week, uh, Matt was talking about Moses from the book of Hebrews. So at the end of Moses' life, uh, he did not go into the promised land. An entire generation of the Israelites did not go into this promised land, this place where they were going to find rest, because of their disobedience. Instead, they had to wait for another generation to come. And so this is hearkening back to that. We're going to explain a little bit more in in parts, but that's uh, what this passage is bringing back. So in verse 2, it references that there was this promise made to Israelites at the end of Moses' life and their wilderness wandering. And the fear is that they may not enter the rest that was promised to them because of their disobedience. And then there's a comparison that the author of Hebrews is making to this early Israelite generation and the generation that he's writing to at this time. And that actually extends to us today. So the key point is that he notes there's a difference in how these two groups have received the message. And the difference he hinges on the idea of faith. So we're going to talk about that faith in, in particular. So what does this mean? It means God gives us a promise, but for it to be effective or beneficial, one has to have faith. It's not that the promise isn't, isn't true without someone's faith. It's not like it's waiting on faith for it to be true. And it's not that the promise requires faith to be enacted. But without faith, you get no benefit. It doesn't make a difference to you. So there's these promises that God is making throughout the Bible. And if you don't come to them with faith, you get no benefit from them. You don't, if you don't believe the promises themselves, they're of no value to you. They don't change how you live. So what, what do we do with faith and promises? I want to take just a second to kind of take a step back. We're going to, we're going to reenter ourselves into the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 and talk about rest specifically. But there's a little moment here for us to think about promises and how we live with the promises of God in the journey of faith that we have. John Piper explains effectual faith 
has the power it does because it looks to the future and embraces the promises of God as more satisfying than the promise of sin. Do you get that? We're, we're following promises every day. They're being presented to us. We're being presented a promise of, by sin, and we're being presented a promise from God. And what we do in faith and belief is saying, you know what, that promise for sin isn't true. It is a lie. It isn't going to bring me happiness. It isn't going to bring me fulfillment. It doesn't make me better. And you're rejecting not believing that promise and instead putting your faith in what God has said and believing that to be true. In that moment, you're exercising faith in the promises of God. So that's the the key to this passage, what it's pointing to. You can think of it almost as like an inducement. Uh, An old uh, Puritan writer, uh, J.C. Ryle, talked about the idea that when God makes a promise, he puts with it this, this inducement, this desire, this benefit to you of something that is a reason to continue uh, in the belief that's set out there. So in our passage that we're looking at here together, the, the inducement, the benefit, is really the rest that God is promising. He's saying, you want rest? I can give you rest. But then he puts with it, there's a behavior, a requirement that he's looking for from us, and that's faith. Faith is required to experience this rest. So we may be thinking, okay, how do I conjure this up? As good Bostonians, to tell me what it is, let's put our head down, let's get it done. Right? I can work to get this done. Not at all. Unfortunately, or fortunately, faith is a gift. It's not something we can accomplish on our own. So faith receives the gift of God's transforming grace as it beholds Jesus. And it sees him as worthy and compelling. And all that God is for us in Jesus, both his past, present, future, becomes the satisfaction of the believing soul. So we want to enter this rest. We want to experience rest. We want to deal with the anxiety. We want to deal with potentially the insomnia. We want to deal with the other issues, the pressures that we have of life. We are tempted to try to accomplish it on our own, but instead we need to humble ourselves and turn in faith to what God promises us, and then we will see them fulfilled. So how, how can these be so powerful? Why, why do I spend this few moments talking about promises, trying to get us to get the idea of faith with them? There's power in the promises of God. A promise is not just words, whether it's from God or from you as an individual, a parent, uh, a spouse. Promises are not just words. They do something. It's words in action to accomplish something. So a promise is a speaker doing something to his listener based on his character. So if I make a promise to an individual, it's only going to be as good as who I am as an individual, right? Scary if you think about it. Make us pause sometimes from making promises. But when you do, you're saying, look, I love my son. I'm going to make a promise to him. I'm going to do something. So then it's built on that connection, the character of who I am and who I desire to be and care for him. Now then amp that up to God. If we see God's character as a true and loving father who wants to give us good gifts, when he puts a promise before us, his whole character is behind it. He is acting in our lives. He's not distant. He's not far away. He is acting still in that promise when we unite with it with faith, which is what these first two verses are pointing to. So there is hope in the promises of God's being fulfilled because it rests squarely on the assumption of divine faithfulness. Everything depends on God being true and God keeping his word. It's the same for the power of the covenant. It's in the power of the trustworthy promise. So God is in action in making, keeping, and fulfilling his promises. And God is actively gifting, building, and sustaining our faith for the promises. 
And these are mighty speech, speech acts of God to make us strong, to give us courage, and give us rest. So that's what he's doing when he makes a promise. It's not something just written on a page. It's a personal being, God, putting before you a promise with his character on the line and his faithfulness so that as you believe it, God is able to then build you up, to hold you strong so you do not fall. So he is doing that work in you as you come to it in faith. All right, we go to our, our second point. We want to talk about the promise of this rest. Okay, what is, what is this going to entail? So in verses 3 through 8, we look at this. So let's look at this together. The author says, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So in these verses, verses 3 through 5, he's, he's quoting the text. Okay? He's bringing it right into there. He's bringing some biblical passages to bear. And then he starts working his way through these texts. So that's what we're going to do together. I mean, I think we talked about it early on. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. It's, it's a guy preaching, in essence, and it's been written down. So as he's speaking, he's actually doing pretty good sermon work here, right? I mean, he's, he's working the text. He's laying it out there, making his arguments from it. So we're going to just kind of follow along with him. What he's going to do in those verses that we just read is he's citing a psalm, Psalm 95. And here he quotes the last verse of that psalm, Psalm 95, verse 11. The psalmist is hearkening back to a scene from the book of Numbers. Okay? So what we have going on here is a high degree of intertextuality. All right? If you're with me here. This is important. All right. Intertextuality may mean nothing to you, but have you seen the Gilmore Girls? Does this connect with anyone? No? You've seen the Gilmore? Okay. The Gilmore Girls are an incredible uh, social piece of intertextuality. Okay, if you're not familiar with the Gilmore Girls, if you're not, uh, not a big fan, they're actually pretty good. But if you, if you watch them, uh, there is just a mother and a daughter, and they talk a mile a minute in the show. I mean, I, I've seen stats on just how many words are used. It's, it's crazy how many words they jam into. I can't imagine what it was like to learn the scripts for these shows, okay? So in this, they make pop culture references, and they make a lot of them. Movies, books, music, plays, everywhere. There's a whole book club list of books that are referenced in the show. So what you have to do to unlock the full intent of the show, you have to know something about pop culture. And I don't know, uh, probably somebody gets them all. I don't get them all. I sit there, I have no idea what they're talking about. I'd have to like Google that to figure out some of the references they're making. But what it is is they're so wrapped up in pop culture that they can make passing references to characters, to statements, to words that are made throughout the, throughout the show, and you know, oh, they're referencing this. Oh, that's from that show. Oh, that's what that comedian said. Oh, that was from that play. Oh, that was from the book. Oh, that's supposed to mean a bad thing. Oh, that's supposed to mean a good thing. Oh, that means they're in love. So there's all this coding that's happening in the way that it's laid out. So what we have in the author of Hebrews here is actually he is uh, using a great deal of intertextuality, but he is so soaked in the Bible. He knows the Hebrew Bible so well, he almost can't speak without making references to something from the Older Covenant, which can make it a challenge for us because unfortunately we're probably a little bit more versed in pop culture than we are in, at times, the the scriptures. So it's challenging for us, right? So I'm going to try to lay that out so you can get the full impact of what he's doing here in this passage. All right, so I've tried to lay it out like this to see if this helps. All right, 
So what he's doing is he's talking about a scene in Numbers 14. Uh, This is that scene I was talking about at the end of Moses' life. Basically, uh, there were two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and they had ten other guys with them. They went into the spy out the promised land, and they came back to report to the rest of the nation of Israel. They said, hey, it looks really good land. You're going to really like this. It's going to be awesome. Joshua and Caleb said, all right, let's go up. Let's go conquer this land and occupy it. The ten other guys, they said, no way. There's scary guys there, there's giants, there's walls. It's not going to work out well for us. Let's not go there. And so all of the nation went, eh, let's do the safe thing. All right? And so then they said, we're not going to go, God. We're not going to go. So Moses and Joshua and Caleb wept and were very sorry for this, sad, praying to God. And God said, no, I'm going to just let this generation pass off the scene because of, their, because of their disobedience. I'm going to wait for all of them to die off in this generation. And then when the new generation is born and living, then Joshua and Caleb, you'll take them into the promised land. So this point is referenced in Numbers 13 and 14 and is specifically uh, kind of one of those dark periods in the history of Israel. Okay? It's, always, it's referenced multiple times throughout the Bible as the scene of where there was just such unbelief, such disobedience from the people. And it rang with overtones throughout the Bible that when it's referenced, you feel that. It's kind of like the way we think of like Watergate, right? When you say Watergate, everyone's like, oh, that's just a terrible part of our past. Oh, it's, you know, you have that kind of pit in your stomach. And then we kind of attach gate to everything, right? So it kind of like makes everything bad again. So you have spy gate and deflate gate. We're familiar with those, I think. Uh, those kind of ominous things that kind of follow us up along the way. And it all harkens back to that moment. Similarly, this is that dark moment in Israel's past. So in Psalm 95 then, it references that Numbers 14 text. And it makes the point, really, it's saying, okay, you should, you should worship the Lord, you should praise Him, this should happen. Don't be like those guys in Numbers 14. Like, he doesn't say it that clearly, but that's what he's saying, okay? He's saying, don't be like those guys. He's hearkening back to it. Now then, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95, which is referencing Numbers 14. So you get this kind of web of intertextuality here that's going on. There's a lot to keep track of, so hopefully the diagram starts to get you there. As you think about Hebrews 4, that's what, that's what he's trying to draw our attention to, to Psalm 95. And so he draws from this, this idea of rest. And it's as if he's talking about rest, they shall not enter my rest, that he then almost comes to mind, oh, you know where else I've thought about rest? Genesis 2-2. That's another one that comes to mind. Okay, Now, you may not be thinking Genesis 2-2 right away, right? Okay, this is the end of the creation account. This is the seventh day when God rested. This comes to mind to the author as he says it. So he's thinking, okay, that rest, yes. You know what? That's a lot like uh, that rest uh, of God that he went through. So it's interesting. When he makes the statement, they shall not enter my rest, he wants to emphasize, let's talk about whose rest it is, right? The antecedent of the my is God. This is God's rest that is being offered to the people, and we're looking for it. All right, so he's working his way through the text. Let's go a little bit further. Read verses 6 through 8. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. All right, so what is he doing here? He's going to interpretation. That's what's happening. 
So his theological interpretation is, okay, remember that? Remember those guys in Numbers 14? They disobeyed. Psalm 95 called you to go ahead and enter the rest. Now here I am writing the book of Hebrews saying, okay, you need to enter that rest. Remember that call? Remember that desire? Okay, well now uh, there is a really important thing. Not only is there this rest, not only is it God's rest, but that rest is still out there to be had. It's not like Joshua perfectly fulfilled this. It's not like it's over and done and we've already had rest. Uh, if you look at Israel today and you followed any of their history, they haven't had a lot of rest. Okay, so the rest is still future. That's his point from this passage. Break it down like this. There we go. So Numbers 14 to, to Psalm 95.7, he picks a different verse. And now he's quoting in, in Hebrews 4 to say, Today. That's his emphasis that he's picking up. He's saying, so there is a chance for rest today. He spoke of that in the time of his contemporary writing as well as to us today to make the point that this hope is still future and still available. So a lot of effort here to put out the words. But again, think of Gilmore Girls. He's just making quick references, quick, quick hits in, in society to try to make clear his point. Oh yeah, you want rest? I know about rest. It's God's rest. You want to get some of God's rest? Well, it's still available. He did a little bit longer, but that's what he's going at. All right, so then let's look at our, our last call then in verses 9 through 11 and look at the labor for rest. So now the, the author of, of Hebrews goes into application for his original audience. So I'm going to just read this instead of putting it up on the screen and kind of walk through this together. Uh, he says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience again. He appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So what's happening here is Jesus is presented as the new and better Joshua. Okay? Joshua was a good guy, did a great job of leading the people to that, and now we have Jesus on the scene mirroring that same action. As Joshua was a deliverer and a rescuer for the people of Israel, leading them to the promised rest, so Jesus is the new and better Joshua, who is the rescuer of his people and leading them to a new and better rest. In fact, it's so clear that we, we miss this, right? We look in English and we think, okay, Joshua and Jesus are different names. You might know a Josh. He definitely isn't a Jesus, right? We have huge distinction between those. But the words are actually the same. The names are the same. The Yeshua of the Old Testament is both the Joshua and the Jesus. It's the same name. In the, in the Greek New Testament, it's the same name here. The Jesus that is presented. So the readers originally in Greek and in Hebrew would know this is the same guy. It's like the same name. I mean, obviously they're different people, but like you would hear that echo, that connection between the two people, whereas we see them as totally different names. So we have to be explicit. This author is making a point to say, just like Joshua, a great guy, a great hero, Jesus, even better. Joshua brought rest and conquest for the nation of Israel. Look what Jesus will do for us and the rest that he promises, even greater. So because that rest is so important, he drives us then in verse 11 to a really clear call, this, the altar call, the expression here. He's saying, okay, strive by faith. Strive to enter this rest. Don't miss it because of your disobedience. 
So the disobedience is similar to that which was talked about in Numbers 14. Not believing God. I mean, that's the problem that we're always in. There's this promise of sin, and there's the promises of God. If we reject the promise of God and believe those promises of sin, then that disobedience in that decision, believing that there's a better way, a way different from what God has put forward to us, always results in unrest, always results in loss. So the argument of the author of Hebrews is receive with faith the promise that God has given you. Even if it's hard to believe, even if it's hard to know that this rest that he's promising is going to be true, that's where we have to be aiming our faith, putting our belief in that direction. So I said it was pretty straightforward. Hopefully you get that. little intertextuality wrinkle in there. I get that. That's a little hard to challenge. But let's talk about what this means for us. Talk by way of application here briefly. So first off, we need to know the promises of God. All right? It's important. As I've laid this out for you, hopefully you've got a taste of saying, hey, they might be important. There might be something there. This is a big part of living the Christian life. We need to be aware of the promises in the Bible and know which ones are directly applicable for us and how to put those in action in our life. There's something you can come back to, something you can sink your teeth into, right? It's difficult. You go out there, and maybe you're in a time of, of great aloneness, great despair. There's no one who quite connects with you. Maybe you're alone, uh, alone in your marriage, alone without a partner. Any of these situations are alone on travel, right? And you may be in a point where you feel really alone. Yet God has made promises to us such as saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So to hold that promise in your mind and believing that's true, so even though it feels that I'm all alone and no one's with me, holding that promise and believing it, casting our faith toward that, actually energizes us and encourages us to have faith in that moment so that we don't do anything that we shouldn't, so that we aren't dire, we aren't drastic in what we do. We actually receive that promise to be the energy and the delight for us to follow what God has put forth. So I encourage you, Know the promises of God. If there's no promises that we're drawing on that aren't coming to mind to think about the challenges that you're facing in your everyday life, that's a need. That's something to be talking about in your gospel community, something to be reaching out to others. We need the promises of God to empower us to live the Christian life. But then secondly, I've talked a lot about rest, uh, but I've kind of just laid out the author's argument. So what does it mean to rest for the present? All right? You still have Monday morning coming, right? Still have all those pressures coming. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about putting faith in the promises of God for our real life needs. And that that rest that God is promising us can make differences in this. So think about identity. I don't know if I used to think identity was a really abstract kind of thing. And then once I was laid off or I lost a, lost a ministry job or different things have happened. And I go, no, identity is like a real life question. People kind of go, like, who am I? What am I trying to do in this life? Why did that happen to me? Who, who am I going to be and who am I, what am I going to be known by? So maybe you're in a situation where you question yourself. You wonder about your identity and you wonder who you are. Well, to rest in the promises of God means that you come back to the idea to say you're a child of God. God has accepted you because of Jesus. So you have worth. You have value. You have standing before the Father. Rest in this identity amidst the challenges and conflicts here, the things where you don't measure up. You can hold that to be true, which can give you an anchor in the midst of all the changing circumstances that you may have here. That's a way that identity rests in the promises of God. What about performance, right? We're high-attaining, high-octane people trying to get so much done. The reality is we miss the mark sometimes, right? You drop the ball. You can't get it all done. No matter who you are, there's a breaking point. As you hit that, does that mean you've failed? and you're no good to anybody, that you don't measure up. No. No, it doesn't mean that. 
you were bad and worthless when you were accomplishing, and you're bad and worthless when you aren't accomplishing. So there's some, there's some good news for today. The reality is, it's what God has done for you, right? You have to hold that promise as true, seeing that God has accomplished so much. So yeah, I'm going to try to live out in obedience to God, not of a debt that I'm going to somehow pay him back for all the ways that God has loved me. I'm never going to make that. Not as an earner, someone who's trying to achieve and I have to make the mark and make the next level in my, my Christian life or anything else. No, I have to come back and I have to realize, no, I'm just a recipient of God's grace. I'm striving. I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to be holy. I'm trying to live this life. But there are going to be times when I'm going to fall flat on my face again and again. And the reason that I had any peace, any accomplishment, cannot be because, you know what, I made it four days without sinning significantly. I didn't fall down. That can't be what I put my anchor on. Because you're going to fall. It's going to happen. You have to put your faith back in the promise of what God has given you. One more, just to think about in the present. And I kind of alluded to this a little bit, but you think about intimacy, right? So you may not have a single person on earth who understands you and really loves you as you ought to be loved. Whether you're single, whether you're married, you may have a difficult marriage, you may have challenges, but as you go through that, you can't put the pressure of the love that you really, really need on another person. They're never going to be able to make it. You're going to smother them to death. Okay? They're not going to hold you up with all of the value and needs that you have. Now, we should be hustling to love and serve others as much as we can. And in our marriages, that, that's, the, that's the role, right? To love and serve your spouse and do what you can. And you will receive blessings in return. It, it's part of how it works. But there's seasons, there's times, or there may be marriages where that other person is not going to be all that you need. And guess what? It's every marriage. It's every situation. They're not all that you need. They can't hold up under that weight. So you have to recognize Jesus is your most intimate companion. He is the one who loves you and cares for you and can meet you in your needs. Love your spouse. Give everything to them. Do what you can to care and care for that marriage. But Jesus is better than your spouse. Jesus will not fail you. Jesus will not let you down. So resting in that allows you then to be an initiator and a server to others in your marriage and care for the other one in your marriage as well as for other people in our lives, right? You're able to give out of that surplus because you know where your anchor is. And it doesn't have to revolve around the conditionality of feeling loved by the other person because it's going to be fickle. It's not going to always work that way. So just in those three brief ways, and there's many, many more, where we can think about the promises of God making an impact for us, that there's rest for the present. In the midst of the challenges, amidst of the pain that's on us, we can come back to rest in what God is promising us. And then finally, there's rest for the future eternity, right? We try, to, we try to live the life we know, okay, there is only salvation or hope for the future, the afterlife, from believing the words of Jesus that Jesus has taken our sins away as one who has taken our place. And so as we turn to him, there's nothing that we bring to that equation. We're bankrupt. We're really bad. So as we turn to Jesus and we think about our future and that hope, it's not, one on, not based on what I did last week. It's not based on how I've lived this life. Ultimately, he is our rescuer, and he is the one that declares and eventually makes us righteous, not our works, so we can rest in that future hope. So we've seen these three components, okay? The faith for rest, the promise for rest, and the labor for rest. And Jesus promises rest to us. So the promises of Jesus are for both the present as well as for the future. We have these promises of God to propel us in this life by faith, 
Lay hold of them, cling to them, strive to believe these, to persevere. So an interesting circumstance, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was uh, in a hotel lobby, and I was uh, waiting on some colleagues to come and join me, and kind of standing around, milling around in this hotel lobby, and there's this this big escalator there, and I'm just kind of waiting, checking my phone, seeing what's going on, and then all of a sudden I hear this terrible screeching noise that's like loud and ear-piercing noise. I'm like, okay. Happens about 45, 60 seconds later, I go, okay, okay, it's this escalator over here. It's making this noise every, like, 45 seconds. It's like, I can't do it. Uh, you got the idea. So it's significant. And you're like, I look around, and there's all the staff there. I'm going, okay, you all hear this, right? This is, this is kind of crazy that there's this noise that's happening every 45, 60 seconds. Nobody shuts down the escalator. Nobody fixes it. Nobody does everything. The cycle just keeps going and going going. I ended up being there like about 15 minutes, a lot longer than I planned to be standing around listening to this escalator, kind of keep making its screeching noise about every minute. But I was like, wow, this just keeps going and going. And what the reality is, is our lives continue to have that same kind of repetitiveness, right? You're going to be on this cycle with these moments of screeching, these moments of terrible anxiety, these moments of doubt, these moments of pain, and you're going to feel the pressure just as methodically and just as heavily as that escalator ran over and over and over. And the reality is, in each of those cases, we have to turn to put our rest in the promises of God, to see what God offers for us. It's the only relief. Otherwise, the escalator continues to go again and again. So let us all strive together to enter that rest. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the words of this passage. God, I pray that it would meet us in the challenges of our real life and that you would give us rest, that we would ignite with faith in your promises and that would change the way we approach the problems of everyday life. In your name.